0: Hey everybody, and thank you for taking the time to check out my little podcast here. Uh, There are a lot of podcasts out there, and you took the time to listen to this one, so I appreciate that. Uh, My guest today is the legendary Steve Brown from Trickster, Uh, but he's really done so much more than just Trickster. He's played with uh, Dennis DeYoung from Styx, comedian Jim Brewer, and of course he helped out Def Leppard for a time when they needed a guitar player, plus so many other bands. Uh, He's in a band called Tokyo Motor Fist with ted poley from danger danger and a bunch of other projects that we'll talk about in this episode i think steve is an incredible talent not only as a guitar player but also a songwriter singer a producer and a businessman so he's got a lot of stuff that he's worked on some exciting stuff he's still working on and some of which he can talk about and some of which he can't but i'll let him tell the rest welcome steve brown to the chuck shoot podcast
1: how you doing I'm doing great, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I think it's about time we did this. I
0: know. uh, I've been trying to reach out forever. It's just like, uh, I don't know. I think, well, I'm kind of stupid because I always like, oh, but when I first started doing this, I'd always reach out on social media, like Facebook and Instagram, but you guys are a lot better about answering emails. So I should have figured that out a long time ago.
1: Hey, you know what I always say? Better late than never. So here we're doing it. And uh, yeah, you know, From cold, windy New Jersey to uh, sunny Arizona, we uh, we are wired via the worldwide intraweb.
0: It's amazing. Yeah, I've interviewed Mark three times. I've interviewed uh, your buddy PJ. He's great, and I haven't haven't had Pete on yet, but he lives here. I think so. Maybe I'll get him on at some point too. Yeah. So everybody knows your backstory. It was Kiss, Rock and Roll All Over, and the Van Halen Eruption that really started the rock thing for you. But let's settle this debate right now with Eddie Van Halen. He is the greatest guitar player of all time, right? Because how many other people can play those songs? Like, can you play Eruption? I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest songs to play, I would think.
1: Well, I mean, of course. I mean, look, Ed Van Halen, I, I say it all the time. He is the undisputed king of rock guitar. Now, forever, till the end of time. You know, he's the one guy who totally revolutionized guitar, but he also revolutionized the way guitars are built. So he revolutionized not only the music end of it, but the gear end of it. You know, with his, you know, he was the guy that incorporated turning, you know, taking a Strat and a Les Paul and kind of morphing it, and then the first guy using the locking tremolos, and um, so it's uh it's pretty incredible you know and his impact especially in the 80s what he did you know and 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 more than anything uh it's the music you know because we wouldn't be having this conversation if van halen didn't have great songs oh, absolutely. As, great as, any, as great as any shred guitar player and especially in this day and age where you know shred and instagram and youtube guitar stars are so prevalent you know um The one thing that a lot of them are missing, and I don't think they even focus on it, because nowadays I know too many guitar players who are like, man, I don't even want to be in a band. I want to sit in my studio and make music and have a million followers and make a couple hundred thousand or maybe a million dollars a year by giving lessons. And it's just incredible what it's done. But Ed Van Halen was the guy who was, to me, The and I I really want to try to work on this somehow with like the uh, whoever writes the dictionary, whoever that is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For the 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 definition, and I don't even know if this is in the dictionary, but the quintessential, the guitar hero. When you look up guitar hero in the dictionary, there should be a picture of Ed Van Halen from like I'm gonna say 1982, because that was my favorite year. I thought he looked the best, he was shredded, he had the frosted hair. He was just unbelievable to me, just the quintessential everything rock guitar hero that's all you need to see and pretty much all you need to hear because everything that came after him was just sort of a uh an imitation and and a and a spin on it you know and that's no disrespect to all the guitar players that came after him you know whether it be randy rhodes or steve Vai, warren D. Martini, jakey lee myself nuno everybody we all wanted to be that and and you know yeah. how could you not because right. it was just everything but you know i think the biggest thing that gets overlooked with you know getting back to eruption yeah can i play eruption of course i can there are a million guitar players who can play eruption nowadays but the difference is no one ever played it like eddie van halen and since 1978 when that was recorded there has never been a recorded guitar solo with that much impact the sound of it every part of it and i remember hearing it as a little kid when he got to the tapping part i mean i was eight years old I was like, it was like out of a movie. My head was spinning. Smoke was coming out of my ears. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a guitar. I didn't know if it was some keyboard. I don't know. I didn't know if it was a violin through an amplifier. It was just the most mind-blowing thing. And then fast forward, you know, 40 years later, um, it still to this day sounds as incredible as mind-blowing as unearthly as it ever did mm-hmm. I mean it's still yeah. and I don't think I I do not think and I' I'll, 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 I'll go to my grave saying this I don't think there'll ever be a greater recorded guitar solo ever than eruption absolutely you know and it's just it's still and that and those records they still hold up to this day and that is the true essence of it and you know that's the thing so what I was saying is getting back to you know the the eruption and everything. Let's let's the guitar playing and ever all the incredible mind blowing things and revolutionary innovative things he did. But let's just give him the most credit for those incredible songs because you know, like a lot of guys, and Eddie Trunk, he always says this, you know, he and he's it's I love him for it because he always says. We wouldn't be having this conversation if he didn't write those songs. And that's really, and the same goes for Jimmy Page, same goes for Jimi Hendrix, still had great songs. Mm -hmm. And And that was the biggest influence to me as a little kid, as a, guitar player, yeah, I was into the guitar playing, but I got equally as interested in songwriting because of Kiss, because of Van Halen. I also got into singing early on and playing because of, you know, I saw Eddie sing in the background vocals, but I was also such a huge, you know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley fan and Robin Zander that I knew I had to sing as well. So, right. Again, it's just, uh, you know, there's so much to it. So many, so many, uh, so many facets. To Absolutely.
0: It. So that I mean, we could do a whole episode about Eddie, but let's get back to you. So you're left handed, but you learned to play guitar right handed because it was cheaper. And so I found this interesting. You spent yeah. your summer vacations playing guitar for six to eight hours a day. So you're not only pre- but you're not only practicing guitar, you're practicing the songwriting. So are you like turning kids down to like hang out and play bikes? And, you know, because like my summer vacations, I'm thinking I just like laid around and watched TV or went swimming in the lake. Like you must have like said no to a lot of fun stuff. Not that playing guitar and practicing songwriting isn't fun too, but I mean, you must have turned down a lot of things to focus on guitar. Like you were that driven at such a young age.
1: I was, I mean, you know, look, I sold my soul to rock and roll when I was a little <laughs> kid, man. Still running with the devil. Um, it was it was a 1978, and then onward. You know, it was just a a constant love of music, guitar, and I became obsessed with all things. You know, I became obsessed with the um, the stories. You know, when I was a little kid. I would read, you know, as we know growing up with vinyl albums, you read the credits. So I knew who Kiss's trucking company was. Right. I knew who Van Halen's booking agent was. I knew who their, you know, Ed's guitar tech was, Rudy Laren, who, you know, has become a friend years later, but you know, I became just so obsessed with all things rock and roll. So you know getting back to being a little kid you know i was a big athlete as a kid you know my dad was a minor league a professional baseball player my brother my older brother um he was an all century baseball and football player for from the town i grew up in in Paramus and so sports was a huge thing for me but then music came and it was slowly as i was getting older the sports were going down so you know probably by 81 82 Um, is when music really had its grip on me. So we would go down to the Jersey Shore and I had my Ibanez Iceman guitar, which I just got back. I think you might have saw that post, which is really cool. It was my first real good guitar. I had my been as iceman guitar and my pv studio pro amp and we'd load that in the car with my surfboard and uh we drove down to you know lavalette new jersey where we vacationed for you know probably a month out of the summer and i would my whole routine you know then was you know i would um i had the randy rhodes starlix cassette and man guitar um like tablature and for i think it was the summer in 81 82 that i got that And uh, I remember, man, I would wake up in the morning and I would go surfing for, you know, an hour or two. And then I would come home and I'd just sit and play guitar and learn Van Halen songs and Ozzy songs. And um, and it was just, uh, you know, it wasn't work for me and I didn't consider practice. I knew that I had to practice because... My parents and my father in particular always drilled into me that if you want to be a good athlete, you want to be good at anything, you got to put the time in and you got to practice. But I loved it so much that I'd be like sitting there practicing my scales. And, you know, my guitar teacher was very cool where he turned me on to having a metronome really early on. And, you know, I had one of these uh, like a plug in metronome that had this weird um dial on it. Hmm. And I learned, you know, and I would just practice my scales while reading circus magazine or hit parader or guitar player or guitar world, you know? And, and so again, it was everything about it was um, encompassing for me and I just loved it. And you know, that's really cool.
0: I love the passion. So then you start the band trickster. I think it was originally called raid, but I didn't know this part of the story that you recruited Pete, to be the singer. And he didn't, he wasn't a singer. You just grabbed you're like, this guy's good looking and you taught yeah. him how to sing. He, did yeah. he even like music or I mean, how did
1: that sales pitch go? Walk me through this. He did. He did. Well, he was, you know, Pete was four years older than me and he was, he was best friends with another really dear friend of mine. The, the late, great Jim DeSalvo, the guy who uh, mastered a couple of the trickster records. Uh, the new audio machine in human era. He passed away a couple years ago in a tra- mm. tragic accident. Not to not to be a downer, but Beam, we love you. Chuck's Chuck's sending good vibes up to you. But he was good best vibes. friend with uh, Pete, and we were all friends in in Paramus. And um and I knew Pete, and I knew all the girls loved him. But I knew also through his sister that he loved Van Halen, he loved Judas Priest, and he loved Boston. So we got to talking. And I remember I called over to the house the other day, uh, you know, years ago. I called in like 1983 to talk to his little sister, and um, and I got him on the phone, and we just got talking about music. And I and hmm. and, and I said, well, listen, man, uh, I play guitar. You want to hear me play? And I and I put the phone up and I played, and he goes, that's not you. No way is that you playing. That sounds like a record, man. That sounds too good. <laughs> and I go, no, it's me. Wow. And I was I was I was 11 or 12 at the time. I don't even know. Damn. So uh, and I, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a band and I, and I knew, and I knew, and again, getting back to how I was into every part of the business, something told me without anybody ever putting it in my head, how important image was. And I knew, I mean, look at Van Halen, look at all the great bands of the eighties image, huge part go even go back, let look, the Beatles, they made it big because they were heartthrobs first you know what Mm -hmm. i mean the girls went nuts for them. stones same thing they all grew into these you know great artistic bands later on in their career but you know Image was so important. Led Zeppelin, the same thing. Where the Alice Cooper, it's a different kind of image. But I knew somehow, intrinsically, or whatever it was, I knew how important a good-looking lead singer, good-looking guitar player, how important the image was. And so I knew, and I said to myself, if I can turn this guy into, into a singer and sing my songs with the way he looks and the way girls go nuts over him, we're going to have a home run here. And uh, that's sort of what we did. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a matter of, you know, I would just go to him. Oh, man, you know, our, you know, our first one of first songs we ever I ever wrote was a song called Mistress. And it was like a really simple, it was kind of like Making Love by Kiss. And, you know, but I played it more Van Halen style. So it was like the... Something like that. You're a mistress of the day and a mistress of the night. And I just said, kind of sing it like that, but maybe try to sing it like... Rob Halford. And so, and, and, and that was the way we communicated where mm. I would say, try to sing it like, you know, try to sing or do like a Def Leppard thing or do like a David mm. Lee Roth thing. And that's how he was able to kind of make sense of what I was saying instead of going, well, sing a E flat major, uh, scale or <laughs> sing <laughs> right like that and you know that's where i think a lot of bands especially early on we would all do that you know where oh man on the drums you know do the hot for teacher thing or right. on the bass do the you know so this is love you know baseline that's kind of the way you talk instead of saying could you play a walking d uh yeah. d scale well yeah because you know, we uh, like that as kids
0: yeah i remember when i was a kid i took guitar lessons and my guitar teacher said he goes most of the guys that you probably look up to don't know how to read music and I, that kind of like surprised me yeah. but it's probably true or like AC/DC yeah. and all those guys they didn't they just picked it up and you probably played by ear mostly right or you said you did use tablature a little bit a little bit but
1: I did yeah and I was lucky enough I started out with real guitar teachers you know getting back to the story of me taking guitar lessons mm-hmm. there was a place and maywood new jersey musically yours where i took my first lessons and that whole story about me playing lefty or righty was my mother walked me in and the guy we needed to rent an acoustic guitar i didn't have a guitar at the time the guy who was running the store taking care of the rental departments he said to my mother is he lefty or righty and she goes oh he's lefty and the guy goes well i just want you to know it'll be cheaper if he learns how to play righty so right hence why I play righty that's so cool
0: so it took a few years but then eventually yeah you guys got signed and then you're this big success on MTV and then the song give it to me good that's uh, arguably one of your biggest hits like it had elements of like Van Halen and Def Leppard and Kiss but um what what inspired like the opening like the piano and the acoustic guitars because that doesn't sound like Van Halen or Kiss
1: no I mean that song was kind of uh, you know that I I think I've said it before but you know that was um that song was inspired I think I was really going through a heavy like Tesla phase and Guns N Roses you know that was I wrote that song probably in you know beginning late 88 early
0: 1989
1: Okay so I, I was so into you know to and Tesla's still one of my favorite bands you know Frankie Hannon and the guys yeah. a big influence on us um and I love the inc- the way they incorporated the acoustic guitars with the rock guitars and especially the way like Frank did it you know to where he would have his acoustic plugged in it would go direct and it would also go into an amp and he was like he was like the first guy that I know of that did that you know to, to get that cool sound you know that he did like on the first album and then on uh, heaven's uh, heavens trail you know mm-hmm. the, and I was really into that and it was just you know and I always wrote kind of on acoustic guitar and you know what's better than strumming open open G to C to E minor to D i mean those are magic chord progressions and you know it was i think it was like a combination of like paradise city a little bit in there you know with the okay lip. and um that was it OK. And it was one of the songs i, I you know chuck it took me I'm going to say 15 minutes to write that song. And it was one of those, you know, one of those really cool instances where a song wrote itself and it wound up being, you know, yeah, probably my, uh, most successful song to date and, um, and unique, you know, and that's the cool yeah. thing. About it.
0: And I think that's why I like it. Covers. Yeah.
1: It doesn't, it, it doesn't sound
0: like even anything on the, that record because with the pianos and the, you know, it's just kind of, it's almost like a bluesy kind of yeah. thing. It's
1: really cool. Yeah, it's got that. I mean, that was our producer, Bill and Jim Ray, when we were doing the record, they, they immediately were like, oh man, we got to add in, we got to add in some B3. We got to add in. They were from, they were from uh, Louisiana. So Mm. they were like, we got to add in some piano, like Sweet Home Metal. So it was like, and you know, and again, when we were making the record, it was kind of like, this was all new to us. So it sounded amazing. Let's add keyboards. Let's add piano.
0: Although yeah and don't you say you're going to you're going to remix that album though cuz you weren't happy with the final like engineering piece of it right
1: well, look, it was it was uh, it was one of those records where we were pressed to get it done. We went we were over budget by you know probably forty or fifty thousand dollars, and our record company was like, "You guys got to get this done." And it was kind of we kind of had to use the, the whatever engineer was available. And and look, I think any band or any artist, when you make your first album, there's a lot of guys that don't like the way you know that don't like the way their first album sound
0: tesla said the same thing i think they said the same thing about their first record yeah
1: well, you know def leppard with their first record we all do that you know mm-hmm. it's like look nothing to me I, I i kind of there's a part of me that hates everything i do because i'm never satisfied and that's the you know you're always trying to reach for the reach for the stars but you know, our record was one of those things where we had to get it done to get it out, and I'm really glad that we did. And we weren't afforded, you know, to be able to remix it a couple times because if it would have came out any later than it did, yeah. we might have missed the wave altogether. So, yeah. you know, looking back on it, it it Look, it all worked out for the for the best, and um, you know. But what I did do as soon as we had the success, when we knew "One in a Million was going to be this next single, I told MCA, right. I said we have to have this song remixed, and I was able to get uh, Mike Shipley from Def Leppard, you know, Phil and the Def Leppard guys, and Peter Mensch, their manager at the time, were able to get Mike Shipley to remix it. You know, Mike Shipley was Mutt Lang's engineer, mm-hmm. he mixed, you know, Hysteria, and so. When we got that remixed, I went to MCA because we were really, you know, we were selling 20,000 records a week at that point. And I went to MCA, the powers that be. And I said, we got to have our record. Mike's got to remix our record. And they were like, first off, kid slow down (laughs) your your record's selling it's not a bad thing and they go do you know how much money it'll cost to have Mike Shipley remix the whole record ain't gonna happen so it was one of those things where hey I was I was 19 20 years old I was full of you know full of energy and I wanted the best for our band so but uh, I got that shot down pretty quick but I'm really happy with the way you know if you listen to the video remix the video mix and what's on the album that's more the way I would have liked the record to sound. Yeah. But, and aren't you going to remix it though?
0: Like currently for the.
1: Eventually I'm, I'm still, we're still trying to work out. I'm still trying to work out the details of getting our okay. masters back from universal. And you know, it was all, it was all kind of moving along, but with the pandemic, everything's kind of been shut down. So, uh realistically i think we're probably going to be looking at best case scenario for that maybe 35th anniversary or 40th anniversary but you know in the meantime over the last year i've been transferring and digitizing all the original old demos all the analog you know uh, you know eight tracks that we did from our first recording sessions ever so when, when the time finally comes that we're going to be able to, that I'm going to be able to release this stuff, it's really going to be something special because I'm going to release everything, everything oh. that we have. Cause there's, there's a ton of stuff that people haven't heard and, uh, cool. you know, really give you insights. on. So like
0: your... maybe like a box set then or
1: something. I don't, I don't, I don't know if trickster really, <laughs> you know, constitute deserves a box set. But... Oh,
0: come on. I've seen, I've seen smaller bands put out box sets.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd buy it.
0: I'm a fan. I'm in. Well, well,
1: cool. Yeah.
0: Well, so besides the fit, there was fans. Obviously you guys are having success, but it's interesting back then there was no internet, but you guys still had trolls, but they were like trolls in real life. Like you had haters. You said that you'd go into like LA because you were from New Jersey and, and everybody kind of got along there. That was more like a brotherhood. But in, in LA, like people kind of looked at you like, what, what the fuck are you doing here? Kind of thing. So talk about the differences between the East coast, how the bands help each other out. And then the West coast, how it was kind of like every man for themselves.
1: Well, you just, you hit it right on the head with what you said. That's exactly what it was, man. You know, look, John Bon Jovi was the guy. He was the guy who coined the phrase, the brotherhood. So, jersey had that thing and and i'll go as far as even say a lot of the new york bands because trickster we started out playing clubs in 1986 we were playing in staten island a lot we were playing in brooklyn you know Lamore park villa in staten island billy o's in staten island the china club studio one in new jersey and uh, mingles down in south jersey so it was trickster skid row um, you know, these other great bands, Sidekicks, TNA, Pharo S.S. Steel. And what was cool about our scene was there were so many diverse bands there. You know, S.S. Steel was one of my favorite bands. And my dear friend Maz, who plays in Ted Poley's band, Guitar Player, he's in Ted Poley's band now. And he also plays in, um, plays with Greg Smith. And he's just phenomenal. But his band was like this real heavy metal band, like Motorhead meets ACDC. And then there was this other band, Faro, where they dress up. They were like Poison on 10. They were like Duran Duran meets Poison meets Kiss. And it would be Trickster, Faro, and S.S. Steel. All three bands, completely different, playing one night together at this club. And there would be guys, you know, biker dudes for SS steel, all the girls you could ever imagine for trickster. And then for Pharaoh, it was just another world altogether, man. I don't know who was there, <laughs> but they were, and it was all these diverse bands, but we all got along. Somebody blew an amp out. We'd be there to take care of them. You know, I remember we played mingles down in South Jersey and the guys from skid row were there. And I blew up three Marshall heads that night. Scotty Hill was there cracking up the whole time. By the time I blew up, the third head. He went back to his apartment where he was living with Snake and got me another head and brought it down, or or he got it from the band that was playing upstairs. Wow! You know, and it was just really cool. So that goes to show you one of the things. But what's up, dude? <laughs> Hi, oh, we got a special go. guest. <laughs> is this <laughs> your daughter? Hi. There you go. This is reality. Here we go. <laughs> it's in the it's by, it's in the uh, living room by the by the lamp.
0: She's all dressed up for picture day. I love it.
1: It it was picture day today. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's cool. um, So there was a brotherhood. There was helping each other. Did did you guys, you said something like, you know, there's always the the bigger band helping out the smaller band. Did you guys ever help out some of the smaller bands?
1: Well, afterwards, so the bigger bands, you know, like I said, John Bon Jovi was the guy when we made our first demo tape, we, uh, we met John and we gave him our demo tape and he was cool enough a week later to call us up on our hotline. We had a trickster hotline that would, you know, it was an answering machine. <laughs> old That's school, cool. It was over at Pete's house and he called us back and he said, Hey man, it's John Bon Jovi. I still have the tape somewhere. <laughs> John Bon Jovi, I listen to your tape. I think you guys got a lot of potential. Keep up the good work. Keep sending me the tapes because we knew we also knew where Doc McGee's office was in um. New York City. So I would always send, every time we do a new recording, I would send the tapes to John, and he would call us back. So fast forward, New Year's Eve, 1986 into 87, Bon Jovi's the biggest band in the world, Cinderella, Bon Jovi, Meadowlands, Arena. We sneak backstage after the show. John comes walking out. He goes, he sees us, because during the show, we were wearing our trickster shirts and holding them up. We were always promoting as a band when we were out on the scene. We always had trickster shirts, whether it was girls or our buddies. Everybody always promoting. So we get backstage and he goes, hey man, I want you guys to meet my friends. This is Dave and Rachel and Rob and Scotty. This is the band Skid Row that I'm working with. And that night we became friends with the Skid Row guys. And then a couple months later, we started opening shows, opening up for Skid Row. So Snake Sabo, Rachel, Scotty, dear brothers who were there to help us out and give us advice, put us on as the opening act for all their local shows. The first show Skid Row ever did with Sebastian in New Jersey at a place called Studio One in Newark, New Jersey. Trickster opened the show for him. And Uh that was the night they got pretty much got signed. Jason Flom was there and a bunch of the people from Atlantic. Oh, man. um, You know, so that was it. That'd be cool to see. Oh, it was amazing. And it was one of those things where that was the, that was my first time we, I'd seen Skid Row numerous times with the original singer, Matt Fallon. And I loved them then because they still had those songs. Yeah. You know, they, had, they had those songs the great songs. Was, These guys are awesome. But the first night seeing them play with Sebastian, it was like, I was like, these guys are gonna be the next big thing. It was undeniable. It was that powerful. It was probably one of the loudest rock shows I ever heard. You know, because back then there was no thing about, you know, taking out certain frequencies to help your ears out. It oh. was just to the wall. And they were unbelievable. And seeing Sebastian up there with the guys, That's you know, cool. it was just like There's the missing element that that band needed. And, you know, the rest is history for them. But they were such an integral part. There's a producer, songwriter, Jack Ponte, who was friends with, you know, who co-wrote a couple of Bon Jovi songs, the guy who he Jack was kind of the guy who really gave John Bon Jovi a start. He was the guy who was the leader of the band, The Rest. That was John's first band after he started getting his things going and The Rest turned into, you know, after John left The Rest. He started Bon Jovi because of Jack's guidance. And so mm-hmm. Jack Ponte was a huge influence. And all these guys, we would take care of each other. That's and we cool. And the same with certain bands, you know, that that came after us.
0: Yeah. So much- well, so then you do the, uh, you're doing these, all these big tours. You toured with Poison and Scorpions and then, but the Blood, Sweat and Beers tour. I mean, I've heard so many great stories And uh, memories from that one. Is there a fun story that stands out that either you've told before or you want to tell for the first time here? Like you got to have something from that tour that was that stands out to you.
1: I mean, it was every night was a standout with that. You know, the first thing about it was we had just come off five months of touring with the Scorpions. We just did, you know, we did uh, five months of multiple nights sold out, you know, two nights at Irvine, two nights at the Oakland Coliseum, everywhere, you know the Scorpions record was through the roof. You know, they had wind to change. We were, we had one in a million and give it to me. Good. We, we were number one on MTV for like, you know, five months straight. So it was like the greatest thing in the world. I mean, to be an opening act that actually meant something. So we got this great deal to go out with warrant. You know, we actually got paid really well with warrant and firehouse. And The cool thing was, you know, the Scorpions, they're legends. We love those guys still to this day. Whenever we see them, they're so great to us, you know, but they were much older than us. We had nothing really in common with them, you know, as far as personal and they're from Germany. When we met the Warrant and Firehouse guys, it was an immediate brotherhood. The Warrant guys just took us under their wing, you know, and, uh, and I'll tell you one thing, man, those guys taught us how to party. They were, <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. They were, all, they were all about it, man. They were hardcore, you know, following in the footsteps of Motley and all the, right. you know, Motley and Rad and Poison and all the LA bands. But- Man, but the one thing about it was we all got along so good, and we would just hang out in each other's dressing rooms, drinking beers before the show, during the show, after the show. (laughs) I mean, it was crazy. Uh. It was crazy. But, you know, one cool story. So every night, and I'm sure you heard this, every night after the show… Janie they would arrange, we would find out what the cool rock club or big bar in whatever town we were playing. So we would make arrangements, Janie and the Warren Guys would make arrangements and say we would they would call over to the club and say, Hey man, we're gonna come over to your club tonight. Just give us free drinks and take care of us, you know. But and yeah. we'll announce that we're gonna come over there. So every night Janie would go, you know, towards the end of the show. He would bring Warrant and Fire, I mean, he'd bring Trickster and Firehouse out. We would do Fifey right to party. And he'd say, hey, we're going to go to so and so, you know, the Rock Bar in, you know, Muske- Muskegon, Michigan or Appleton, Wisconsin, whatever place it was. We're going there afterwards. Come hang out with us, blah, blah, blah. So it was a no brainer, man. The p- club would be packed. We would go there. And it would usually be, you know, we'd put be in like a roped off area. And then we'd wind up, you know, drinking and partying, signing autographs for people. And then we'd start like playing pool. So, I remember it was uh, PJ and I, me and PJ, playing pool against Eric Turner and Janie. And we were playing a couple rounds of pool, and I was pretty good. Nothing, nothing like those guys. Janie. God rest his soul. That guy was a good athlete. Any sport he ever played, he was really good. He was really competitive in all aspects of life. You know, music was one thing. I know, you know, what a super talent he was. But when it came to playing pool, he was really competitive. Interesting. Yeah, dude. and And Eric Turner, too, man. Eric was a great pool player, too. So we're playing pool. And I remember it started getting into, you know, They started betting, and it was like, oh shit. Like, (laughs) I'm not getting into, I'm like, I'm not getting into this. And it was got to the point where Janie was, he could be a very, especially after a couple tequila's, he could be a very demanding individual. (laughs) So we're playing pool and getting to the end. There's a couple, you know, I'm feeling really confident. And he goes to me, Steve, I bet you a thousand dollars that you can't sink that next shot. And I was sweating, I'm like, holy shit. And I'm like, you know what? And I think I had a couple tequilas in me. At the time. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, fuck it, man. I'm going for it. And I shot and sure enough, I sank the fucking ball. Nice. Ass. And it was like, man. And, and, you know, I could see Eric was cracking up, and, uh, <laughs> but long story short, Ugh. he never did fucking pay me that thousand dollars. Oh. Cause
0: you he know, would I have it more was, than you would. I mean, he was yeah. m- making more money at the time.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but it was, it was one of those, but it was a cool thing because I'm not a really a betting guy, you know, I mean, you know, when it comes to life decisions, you know, let me think about this. I'm going to try 12 years old. I made the decision. I'm going to start a band and become a rock star and we're going to tour the world. That's what's going to happen. That's a pretty bold bet on your life situation. Did you make that decision?
0: Like you believed that was going to happen. You weren't like, well, it'd be cool if it did. Like you actually believed that at 12 years old.
1: Uh, well, wholeheartedly, I did, but I never thought about it that way. It was hmm. just, again, the love of everything, being in a band. It was all of it that I fell in love with. And then later hmm. on, I fell in love with, you know, reading publishing contracts. And, you know, th- those are the huh. cool things, the really important lessons that John Bon Jovi. Snake Sabo and Rachel, those guys instilled and and they taught me and they, you know, Snake and Rachel hooked me up. My first real lawyer was Michael Guido, who was Skid Row's lawyer, Richie Sambora's lawyer. That was one of the first things John Bon Jovi ever told me was make sure you have a great accountant and have a great lawyer.
0: Yeah, uh, that's important. Those were
1: huge, huge life lessons. So for all you young bands out there still holds true. For sure, Uh, and then yeah, didn't you use the
0: bonus from your first record to buy a house? And is that the same house and recording studio, or is this a different one now?
1: No, man, I've been in this house for almost twenty eight years. July (sighs) of this year is going to be twenty eight years I've been in this house, and yeah, this is uh, the house that uh, that Trickster built, and my you know ten thousand hours of work before even Trickster got signed. But um, you know, yeah, we were we were blessed in in many many. parts of our career in the sense that we had we had young hungry managers who they were very smart in certain things but not very smart in other ones but one thing they mm-hmm. learned under the guidance of we were we were kind of sort of managed uh by afar by q prime management who was peter Mensch and cliff bernstein who managed def leopard who managed metallica tesla tesla yeah. they were they were our managers mentors ken and joel who managed us and the one thing that they uh, that they learned and they were taught by Q Prime was get upfront money. Get your money up front. If mm. you get a publishing deal, take it. And luckily, um, they were able to make some very smart decisions for us um, that, you know, financially put some money in our pockets. Where there were a lot of bands that I knew that didn't sold twice as many records as us and didn't have the kind of money that we were making. And, you know, mm. I mean, you hear those stories all the time. Yeah. And. So we were blessed in that sense.
0: Yeah. So with that second record here, you kind of took the reins on more of the production aspects and Mm -hmm. you you guys were kind of like, you're coming off so much success. You think you're going to take over the world. But two weeks after the record comes out, you find out MTV says they won't play the video. Like, how does that make any sense? You're on the road opening for kiss and your other videos got such great responses. It's all number one on the, whatever that show was dial MTV or whatever. So, I mean, does that, did did they have
1: some sort of answer or reason for that? It was just the times, you know, and sadly it was, it was again, part of our managers being young and I guess maybe protecting us. We Mm. were living in a bubble. We had just, in January of 1992, we renegotiated our record deal and we signed directly to MCA Records. We got a million dollars. We got a half a million dollar advance signing bonus, and we got a half a million dollar recording budget thrown on top of video budgets and tours you know, whatever we needed, wow. we were gonna have because of our success. Uh-huh. You know, we we sold a lot of records on the first record. You know, probably at the time, and you we know we were up to like 750,000 records, close to a million around the world. So we and that's what most big bands do. We had a great lawyer, God rest his soul, this guy Alan Mintz, who just renegotiated a huge deal for Megadeth. And so we were brought Alan came in and I was in the negotiations. It was probably one of the coolest days of my life hmm. where I was in with my manager, Joel, Alan Mintz, all the powers that be at MCA Records, the business affairs, and it was a very unique situation, and they wanted me there because they want, they liked me. We had a great relationship with a lot of the, the promotion people at MCA and the business affairs. They liked us, and I think they liked the East Coast, you know, the ballsy. Yeah. Kind of- well, I'm
0: picturing like Shark Tank. Was it kind of like Shark Tank? Like,
1: I was a little like that, but really, you know, I mean, you got to see, well, our management company, they were named Shark Entertainment. So I wasn't in the shark tank. I was yeah. one of the sharks. Yeah. And so we uh, negotiated this great deal. And again, we were coming off 13 months of touring, living the rock and roll fantasy and yeah. I think if you ask any band who comes off a successful record, you never think it's going to end. Mm. You think it's, on, and especially, we just signed a million dollar deal, and that day after I signed the deal, I went up to Eddie Van Halen's house, I went up to 5150, and I was playing all of his guitars, and it was like the craziest day of my life, in a sense. And I remember the next day calling my parents back home in New Jersey, and they asked, "How? Oh, how was your day? My mother, I think, she goes, Oh, Steve, so how's California? How did everything go yesterday? And I said, Mom, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. You wouldn't believe the day I had, you know? So... Fast forward, we we start working on the Hero record. We had all the songs demoed. We did everything on the road. We made what I think I wrote the best, one of the best records, the best songs of my career. I it agree. Was a big, big leap forward. You know the record. Anybody that knows that record, it is a huge leap forward, and it was very much. I want to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. I want to show everybody that Trickster is just not this kiddie band. We're not the metal edge poster pinup band that you think we are. We're a real, we're not a manufactured rock and roll, you know, sort of uh tiger beat thing. We're a real rock and roll band. And that record was that I brought in Jimbo Barton who did Queens, I can rush to co-produce it with me. And we made a phenomenal record, but Without even knowing it, the music scene had completely changed around us, and we were kind of oblivious to the fact. Mm-hmm. You know, not like it would have mattered because I don't think any band of that genre, if you would have made Sgt. Pepper, I don't think it would have made a difference. Yeah, you know, Warrant made a phenomenal record when they made Doggy, Doggy, Doggy. Dog, so yeah. it was over just like Trickster. Yeah. um, you know, I, I even Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was
0: just going to say, I even love uh, your follow up to hear the Undercovers EP, especially yeah. as a young kid, like, because some of those songs I, I hadn't heard before. Um, but, like, I love your cover of Fight for Your Right to Party. And you guys, you changed some of the lyrics. And I think I asked Mark about this, and he couldn't remember whose idea that was. I know that you guys would say, like, uh, cause you do the song during the warrant and it would be like, mom, you're just jealous. It's the fucking down boys. But you change it to like, mom, you're just jealous. Cause daddy likes boys. Like who came up with that? It's like, it made me laugh so hard. I mean, it still makes me laugh. Like I have a middle school sense of humor, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's all it was, you know, and that was the first record we recorded here in my studio, you know, right after I, Right after we came off the road for here, I, I bought my house and I built a studio, and so the first order of business was to make a record and kind of test out the gear and that we I brought in a great engineer, this guy Gene Porfido, who taught me how to engineer. So we kind of, you know, did it together, and uh, we made this fun record. And we were going through some legal stuff at the time, so that's kind of why we made the covers record because uh, okay. we were. We were we were trying to work out some things, and uh, it was a way so we could get back out on the road. But oh. I don't really know, man. I, I'm gonna take I'm gonna chalk that up to too many cocktails one night <laughs> while we were doing it, and just to, you know having fun. Yeah,
0: you know, it sounded like you're was- having fun on that one. And then there's another band that you're in. I'm just now learning about some of these other bands that you're in. Throwing Rocks. Is it true? Yeah. So this was kind of like an Oasis, uh, Black Crows kind of thing. Is it true that you guys
1: open up for Alice Cooper though with this one? And the scorpions, yeah, yeah, we did. Dang, so throwing rocks was right after. That was 1995, right after, right after we kind of knew that Trickster was gonna need to be. We're gonna need to press pause on this. Sure. Um, it was, it was going nowhere, and luckily we were young enough to where we can. We said, you know, PJ and I said we need to reinvent ourselves, and I had written some songs. This one song, "Absolute Ozone Baby," which you can see the video. It's on YouTube. And I wrote this song, you know, before we went out on the road for undercovers with Trickster and we started playing it live where I was singing it. And by that time we were experimenting, everybody in the band was singing, you know, PJ was singing some songs, doing like Dirty Deeds and Nine Inch Nails. Mm -hmm. And and I was singing a bunch of stuff and um, it was really kind of the band was changing. And so we started playing the song. And I kind of, as the tour progressed, I knew that this is the direction I wanted to go. And it got to the point where I knew that I wanted to reinvent myself. I wasn't going to be playing, you know, Eddie Van Halen's shred guitar. It was going to be, I was pretty much going to be a singer. And it was going to be very much based on a Beatles thing, Oasis, Black Crows, Lenny Kravitz, a little STP thrown in there. And um, it, was, it was an incredible band, but... You know, again, like all of the bands after Trickster, there was Thrown Rock, Soaked, Forty Foot Ringo, Stereo Fallout. You when you have success as a trickster and as great as that was, and what a blessing it was, you're kind of a marked man to where record company guys would come out and see us and go, Man, I really dig this, but I can't sign the guys from Trickster. You know, we ran hmm. into that kind of discrimination, you know, if you will.
0: Well, yeah, that's funny because I asked – um, I had Sahaj Ticketin on my show, you know, from the band Raw, and I asked wow. him about that with PJ because I just thought that was so cool that he had PJ in his band. I was like, you didn't think about, like, you know, that he was in Trickster? Like, did that, like – play into your decision at all. And he's like, no, he's, I saw him and I thought he was really tight in the pocket or whatever the terminology is. I don't know. He just thought he was a really good bass player. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. He didn't care because yeah, with like 40 foot Ringo, you said you were really close to being signed uh, to Sony, but that that yeah. was part of the thing. You guys kind of sound, I think that band, am I crazy? It almost sounded kind of like a pop punk kind of band, like a blink One oh. Eighty Two, Newfound new glory kind of thing.
1: Yep. It was that we were the kings of atomic pop. You know, that's kind of what we, uh, yeah, it went sounded
0: by. good. It, it and was, you had the look, you had the short hair and like, I'm surprised you were still really young. So it's weird.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's the way it goes, man. You know? And again, like I tell people, you know, above and beyond the trickster success or any band for that matter, that gets a record deal and actually gets their record a major label deal gets their record released there's a lot of bands when you go up it's like a pyramid or going up to the mountain mm-hmm. right you get to that one point where you're like 10 feet from the top of the mountain that's the hardest part getting signed is one thing but when you get signed that doesn't mean your record's going to come out that right. doesn't mean you're going to even have any success whatsoever you know there there are stories of Hundreds of bands who have gotten big. I know guys that have gotten half a million dollar deals in the '90s, and their record never came out because by the time they finished their record, and um, by the time it was supposed to come out, their A and R guy gets fired. So you know what? The, the record company goes, "Ah, hey, you know what? It's cheaper just to write them off." Huh. And it happens. Wow. So it's crazy. You know, look, man, we we were. PJ and I with these bands, we basically gave it to these guys on a silver platter. Like, you know, Soaked was another one where we came very close. The guy Michael Kaplan who signed Firehouse was so close to signing us and tried to push it through. He loved it. But again, it just was one of those things where it was, it just didn't register. And, you know, I mean, that, that instance, it wasn't directly told to me that it was because of the trickster thing, mm-hmm. but. It, you know, that's kind of what I feel because, again, you know, between if anybody listened, go listen to Throwing Rocks, listen to Soaked, listen to Forty Foot Ringo, listen to Stereo Fallout. If any major label would put their machine behind it, take away the trickster element, no, nobody who's buying those records would care about the trickster mm-hmm. thing. Just put it out there, let the music do the talking, and we had the image. So but yeah, it's just, are it you wasn't gonna? It.
0: Be. Did I hear you're going to release the, uh, 40 foot Ringo CD eventually? Well,
1: 40 foot Ringo has been out that, you know, we, the were whole a, thing? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's out. It's on, it's on all the streaming services. The CD has been out. I mean, we, we wound up getting a good overseas deal with that okay. and, a, and a good Japanese deal. Um, that's been out for years. Uh funny thing it's called, but, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of fixing up and mixing and remixing all the thrown rock stuff. Mm. That's going to come out. Okay. first hopefully by the end of the year or early next year the stereo fallout stuff is out in uh, on on digital and streaming that that's phenomenal that's one of the greatest things i've ever done and um you know but again it is it's the journey that you go on in this business and you know look the one thing that i always say is you have to get up to the plate and take a swing and that's you could say whatever you want about me or PJ, the both of us together. The one thing we've always done, we have no fear. We go out there and we get up. We, you know, we take all the, you could throw the tomatoes, but at the end of the day, <laughs> we get up to the batter's box yeah. we take a swing and we've always taken a swing with high quality music no. and a high quality band. And, you know, and that's, that's at the end of the day, that's what I'm proud of because the music is what's going to live on forever.
0: For sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just kept persevering. You're playing in all these bands. There's a couple uh, trickster albums released later, but then Def Leppard, they give you a call and, and you join Def Leppard for a little bit. And they had an interesting story about them. Like you you talked about how they still share the same dressing room. Like no one has a separate dressing room in that band. How did they find a way to get along like that when so many other bands of that caliber have separate tour buses and dressing rooms? Like what is their
1: secret? I think, well, first and foremost, it's the way they were brought up. You know, they all came from, you know, good families, working class families in Mm. the UK and Sheffield and, you know, Phil's from London and they come, they're just great people, you know, besides being such incredible rock stars and the music they've written and the songs at the core of it, they're good guys, you know, and that's the coolest thing. And that's when I first met them in 1987, they haven't changed. You know, when I met Phil Collin, you know, he was not the biggest one, you know, Def Leppard at the end on the Hysteria, the beginning of the Hysteria tour. They were one of the biggest bands in the world. Hysteria hadn't taken off yet, but he gave me the time. He didn't know who I was. I was a 16 year old kid, 17 year old kid, and we hit it off immediately just talking about guitar gear. You know, I asked him about his Bradshaw rig and we were talking about which was the big, you know, guitar uh, rigs that everybody had back then, the huge pedal boards. And then, you know, a year later, when Pour Some Sugar On Me took off and Hysteria became the massive success that it was, They were all still those same guys and we would be backstage with them and they'd come off stage and, you know, instead of getting in fancy clothes and, you know, dressing like, you know, dressing like they were on stage, you know, there'd be Joe Elliott in a ripped shirt and sweatpants. know, drinking a glass of wine. Same thing he does now. You know, where he's got his robe on and his feet. He still has those slippers with the animals that (laughs) that I think that's in the "Pour Some Sugar on Me" video. But that's the core of it. You know, and they're all the same way. Viv, Rick, Sav, Phil, Joe, and they just are so cool. And you know, for me, the coolest thing was how they brought me in when I came in to fill in for Vivian was I was an equal member of the band as far as I didn't travel with the crew I didn't have a separate dressing room. The only thing I didn't have with those guys, I didn't have my own wardrobe case. It was a little bit of a pain in the ass. So I had my, I was dragging this suitcase around that had my like, you know, my my, my stage clothes and my luggage. Finally, the wardrobe girl, Tish, goes, Steve, let me take your stuff and I'll put it in, I'll put it in, I guess, uh, I'll put it in Phil's wardrobe case. So at least I didn't have to carry my smelly clothes everywhere. But um, again, man, one of the few bands and believe me i've been around a lot of the biggest and the best in the biz and there's very few of the big bands of that level that all share all five guys still share the same dressing room and it's just Hmm. a testament to who they are as people because they all still genuinely get along fabulous you know telling jokes and and they they have, a, they all have a great sense, sense of humor. And I think they really love me because of my youthful, you know, humor and some of the jokes it's always, you know, like Rick Allen would say, Oh, it's nice to hear some different jokes once in a while. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. So you're touring with them and kiss and uh, you had toured with kiss obviously before trickster yeah. opened up for them. Is that the first time you saw them since you had opened for them or you stayed in contact yeah. with Gene and Paul?
1: always oh you know from the first reunion tour we were always you know PJ and i always backstage every tour they ever did we were really? always good Tommy Thayer is a dear friend Eric Singer's like a brother, you know. Funny story when we were on tour with Kiss and in, in on the Revenge tour, you know, Gene would always go, "Hey, listen, you guys should get Eric Singer in your band. You know, he's got the hype thing, he looks good, uh he's a lot better than your drummer." You know, and he'd go, "He go, but the one thing is, I get 10%." You know, Gene always <laughs> He's trying know, to always... do some sort of deal or something. Yeah, totally, man. He's always busting balls, but um yeah, it was we were always friends with them and always you know there and and again, you know, Paul and Gene knew about 40 Foot Ringo, you know, because again, right. I was always anywhere I'd go, I was always selling myself, so I was I was always giving the CDs to everybody. Tommy Thayer really loved 40 Foot Ringo and um you know, so long story short, the coolest thing about so the Kiss Def Leppard tour of 2014, you know, I got called, you know, Steve, we want you to come out. You're going to start doing sound checks, rehearsing with the band. So one of my first, I think it was the second sound check that I did. It was up in, um, it was up in, where the, where was it? Where was it? Um, Saratoga, Saratoga, New York. Um, we're doing sound check and, you know, I'm getting my inners in and we do Hysteria. And I think that day we did Hysteria, Let It Go, Couple Tunes, Rock It. And we get in, I get my inners on, you know, I'm doing my thing, getting into the groove, playing hysteria. And I look back, I look over my right shoulder and there's Paul Stanley and Eric Singer. They're sitting there. I remember Paul looking at me, you know, because they were so happy that I was out there and yeah. you know, I known these guys for, you know, 20 plus years at that point. And I just remember sitting there and seeing Paul's face, you know, and he's kind of going like a proud you know, dad. Yes, yeah, sort of. I don't know about that or just going, look at you, motherfucker. You're playing with <laughs> Def Leppard now, but
0: Super you cool. know, they
1: were just so cool. And then afterwards, you know, so it was really wild to be sitting there and I'm like, holy shit, here I am on stage playing Hysteria with Def Leppard and Paul Stanley is watching me. You know, it was like, it was just...
0: That's insane. Yeah. Again, and then
1: and one of those, you know rock and roll fantasy moments.
0: For I mean. sure. There's so many of those that you have. And then you got to, you played with Jim Brewer, the comedian, which who, I don't know if people yeah. know that he does music, but he, he's such a good um, impersonator. He yeah. can sound like, I feel like he could step in for Brian Johnson and nobody would know the difference. Like he's that good of a impersonator. He's,
1: he's phenomenal. He has a great, great rock and roll voice. I don't know if yeah. you've ever heard his solo. Rock oh and yeah. He, yeah. Brewer. It's a really it's good. Record. You know, Rob, Rob Caggiano did it with him. Jay Rustin mix it. It's a phenomenal record. Mm-hmm. And I told him right from the get-go, I'm like, dude, once we get this comedy thing down and what we're doing with you, I want to make a record with you because you're that fucking good. And not only can he sing like Brian Johnson, but he can do the, he talks like them. And he does his Im- yeah, imitation oh yeah. every DC guy. And so, yeah, Jim. Is he like really that, cool. like
0: behind the scenes? Is he doing the voices and shit and just cracking you up? Or is it only when yeah. the mic's on? Yeah.
1: I mean, Jim's a great guy. He's a family guy, loves his family. He's the nicest guy in the world, but he's also very funny. And yeah. it was great for PJ and I because we are both frustrated comedians. So we would be riffing with him, you know. I mean, I don't know if you ever heard, but in for my book, you know, PJ Farley does probably one of the best Gene Simmons impressions what? ever. Oh, I've never heard oh, this. Dude, dude, hands down. You got to hear it. He does it, especially early in the morning, you know, when your voice is a little yeah. thick. But man, his is Shit. his is probably the best I've ever heard. I'll have to have so him back on. We would be doing jokes all the time, man, and it was just so fun. So we put together this thing, and we were doing this residency at the Paramount. And Jim was great to work with. We did. We wound up doing probably you know a year's worth of work with him, and uh, you know to be continued. You know, okay. we'll see what happens when uh, when live shows get back to normal.
0: And you might do a record with him and play on the record as well.
1: I would love to. You know, it's just a matter of you know. Look, he's the boss. So okay. He calls me up and he says, hey, Steve, with his brother, wait, I want to make an ACDC type record. <laughs> We're going to do it. You
0: know, I don't know Fine. what that
1: accident was, but uh, <laughs> you know, he's so much fun and all yeah. of his friends and, you know, just again, it was just a, a new – I'm always – at this point in my career, uh, Chuck, I'm always looking for new avenues and new challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, There's so much that I've done, but there's also so much I haven't done. So that's the yeah. key. And that's what I do with making records nowadays. It's like I think about what haven't I done? So the new Tokyo Motorfist records. Yeah, I was just gonna Lion ask
0: you about that, yeah.
1: Okay, so that's a perfect example. The title track, Lions on It. That's the boldest, most, you know, adventurous song I ever wrote in my life. I wrote it on piano. I played all the keyboards on it. I had my friend Michael Hunter play violin, real string sections. Very much influenced by my pal, Dennis D. Young, Queen. You know, a little Def Leppard thrown there. More chords than I ever could imagine putting in one song. That's something I never wrote, let's say, my Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Lions is like Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's a very adventurous song. With that, I was very lucky to get my other good friend, who I sometimes play with, the great Dennis DeYoung, who used to be in Styx. Yeah. He played the keyboard solo on it that's one thing I never had one of my songs all my records have you know as much as I love the shred guitar and the Van Halen style guitar that I do I wanted to try something different I'm like I'm tired of playing guitar solos mm-hmm. let's do something different so I had Dennis play this incredible synth solo that he played with his original Oberheim the ob8 synth keyboard that he used back in the sticks days and we recorded it at his house and it was again, one of these things where it's a pinch me moment, but something I've never done as a producer. I've never, you know, I've never had Dennis and I never got to record together. So this was, but you got to put,
0: and you also played live with Dennis, right? Like who does the Mr. Roboto voice? Do do you get to do that voice or is that Dennis?
1: No, no, that's his keyboard player. That would be cool to do that. But, and then, um, oh, the other cool thing, the cool thing with playing with Dennis is I got to play like Def Leppard. I played, you know, I filled in for Vivian and I filled in for Phil with Dennis's band. I played for both of his guitar players as well. So I got to sing the Tommy Shaw songs, filling in for August Zadra. And then when I filled in for Jimmy Leahy, I got to sing Miss America, which is a J.Y. Young song. So it's, uh, you know, just really, really, again, you know these unbelievable opportunities present themselves to me, and I'm, you know, absolutely. I can luckily I could cover all the parts. And yeah. Oh, another question I had about the
0: Tokyo Motorfest album, which is a great album, but the song Sedona it's got it's got Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band. Is that yeah. song is that about the city Sedona in Arizona
1: here? Well, it's sort of that okay. that song. That song, yes, Mark Rivera, the great Mark Rivera. So that's another one. I never had a sax solo, besides Edgar Winter, who played on a trickster song back in the day. One more time? Yeah yeah one more time that was never supposed to be the title of that song really yeah that was our manager did that and it was like one of those things where he sent it to the record company without me and my approval and it wound up we see the cd we're like what the hell is one more time you know what am i bobby brown You know? <laughs> come on, man, I'm speed bread.
0: Oh, that's hilarious, you
1: know, but I never had a sax solo beside and and Mark has become a dear friend, Chuck Bergey, our drummer in Tokyo Motor Fist, is Billy Joel's drummer, so yeah. we sent the track to Mark, and he was more than willing to do it, and he loved the song and it just fit it, fit the song superb. The lyrics of Sedona. Are, it's very much me trying to do a David Lee Roth lyric writing drill to where, you know, Dave was always good at writing these songs to where you never knew quite what, what was Panama? Was it a car? Was it a place? Was it a girl? Was it a guy? Hmm. Was it, was it a, Bulldozer, you never knew what it was. I thought about that, yeah. Yankee Rose. What was Yankee Rose? You know, was it the Statue of Liberty or was it a chick or was it a guy? You don't know. Or was it (laughs) a robot? You know, so it was kind of me doing a little bit of play on words to where Sedona talks about this beautiful scenic, you know, things and I, you know, I was writing the lyrics in summer of 2019. I was over in Germany with Def Leppard and Bon Jovi. I took my family on vacation and I went to the Nashwenstein Castle, which is the, the castle in the Bavarian mountains that the, uh, that Walt Disney used for the Magic Kingdom. It's kind of the inspiration, King, King Ludwig's castle. And so I saw these incredible vistas. And so I was using that. I was writing down, you know, kind of one liners. And, um, and that's kind of what it was to where you could take hmm. Sedona where, you know, hey, you look at a beautiful girl uh, and you could kind of equate it. Wow, that girl, she's got some peaks and valleys, if you know what I mean. You know, <laughs> uh, you know it's kind of the fun play on words, okay. but it's worked out. And that song's been, you know, that's kind of been like one of the sleeper hits on the record. I've been getting more, you know, emails and, and it's kind of social media stuff going, wow, S- Sedona, that's one of my favorite songs. And the one cool thing about Sedona, which only PJ really knows, is is that that song, that riff, that guitar riff has been around for 30 years. I wrote that hmm. right after we finished the first Trickster record. So I used to play it every day at Soundcheck on the first couple Trickster tours. And f- when I finally finished it and I gave PJ a copy of the record, he goes, you finally used that fucking riff. <laughs> <laughs> and, there it is. and I go, hey, man. And I'm good like that, man. I keep a real good um, sort of inventory of my unused songs. And I use a lot of it okay. You know, around midnight was a leftover 40 foot Ringo song that, you know, oh. I brought into Tokyo motor fist and we supercharged it. Oh,
0: so, very cool. So all the success you've had, like you said, your, you know, your dad was a semi uh, a pro baseball player. So you really like, you know, push you for winning and stuff. Like, I like having this conversation. Do you think your success was like your talent, the hard work and perseverance, some of the networking or luck or a combination of all that? Like
1: how much of it is luck? It's all of it. It's um, all of it. I think luck is, is equal parts. Everything, man, you know, it's to be successful, You'd be stupid not to think it's the, the, that luck doesn't play into it. It's, it's being at the right place at the right time. Look, getting back to the trickster thing, we were part of an incredible wave of music. The 80s hard rock started out with Van Halen. Then you go, you know, Van Halen, Def Leppard, ACD, well, ACDC was there already. But what happened was, you know, you had the Def Leppards, the Motley Crue's, the Bon Jovi's, you know, the Rats, the Dawkins, everything in between. And then you had the second and third versions of it. And we were, you know, the third version of all of it. We were a, a combination, a sausage, if you will, of all those bands. And um, you know, we were in the right place at the right time, but it was, it was equal parts: image, sound, um, networking, you know, and 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 luck, of course. You know, look, man, Trickster got discovered by it wasn't our manager came to see me playing in a Van Halen tribute band. He saw me playing Van Halen songs and he saw me doing the Eddie Van Halen thing. And he said, I don't know what you're doing, but I want to work with you. Do you have a band? And then he came and saw trickster and he was like, this is it. This guy, Ken Mako, who was, uh, you know, one half of our management team. But, you know, if he didn't see me that night, what would have happened? I don't know. You mm. know, I still like to think that we would have been successful, or at least I would have been successful, but, you know, that is a chance luck meeting. But, mm. It's the 10,000 hours of rehearsing, writing, practicing, playing live, you know, and that's what we did, you mm-hmm. know, and that's what I did when I started this band, but it was just done again. It all comes down to the love of music and the love of all things rock and roll that encompass being in a band, camaraderie of the guys. And that's what we did. And, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful to have been a part of what I consider the greatest genre in rock and roll because it was the most fun. And anybody mm-hmm. that was there can tell you that. No, you I'm know, fascinated
0: by had... that scene for sure. It's a, oh,
1: man.
0: this is an interesting moment I heard you talking about. So you're playing shows with Def Leppard in front of 20,000 plus fans. You're living your dream. You're on top of the world. And then you come home to New Jersey and you do like an acoustic show on a Tuesday night in a restaurant in front of 10 people. And you said this was like depressing to you so much so that you stopped doing those kinds of shows. So I had kind of two thoughts on that. Like one is like, um, you know, isn't that kind of part of the business to where you're kind of all over the place, like with big gigs and small gigs, like one day you're on Eddie trunk, the next day you're on Chuck shoot podcast. Like, and my, but my other thought is like, I think that you've worked so hard and you've had so much success. I don't blame you one bit for not wanting to do those small shows. If you don't have to.
1: Yeah, you know, look, it was. Uh, I, I did the New Jersey cover scene for, and I still do play gigs once in a while. But that was one of those moments where I had to make a decision of uh, that I want to get out of playing bars. And it was just, you know, look, I, I don't, I don't know too many people, man. When you get done, you know, playing in front of twenty, thirty thousand people uh, with one of the biggest rock bands in the world, and you're playing arenas and stadiums. Um, And then you come home and you play a Tuesday night acoustic gig. And look, I am so grateful that I have made a living for more than 35 years as a professional musician. I've never had to work a day job. Hmm. I'm blessed a million times over. But it just gets to a point where, you know, you're playing and you got to ask yourself, there's got to be a better way. And so I've always been one of these type of guys that makes things happen. I don't sit around and, and wait for other people to make things happen for me. I make things happen for myself and for my family. So it was a matter of reinventing and saying, I'm not going to do this. And I'm just going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on producing and doing, you know, staying in my studio. And that's what I did. And, you know, now, I, you know, luckily, again, I can pick and choose what I want to do. Money doesn't dictate mm. Um what I do, even though the money is nice, if I want to make another Tokyo Motor Fist record, I'll make it. If I don't feel like doing it, I won't. You know, I don't have to do anything. And that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And the power, of saying, the power of saying no to me is one of the most important things to where I get calls to do gigs by some relatively big bands. And I go, how much is the pay? And then I go, how much work do I got to do? And I go, you know what? Thanks for calling me, but it's just not right for me. So I'm, I'm at that point in my life that you know, going on 51 years old now, um, where I can say no to things. And Mm -hmm. that's a very empowering thing because I get to focus on what I really want to do, you know, and spend more time with my family.
0: So what do you, besides, um, spending time with your family, obviously, what do you want to do with music? I I know you've talked about, I don't know if you're kind of joking, but you talked about maybe doing an autobiography, calling it one in a million. Are you, you, are you going to start that? Is that something you actually do or?
1: I mean, at some point, I, I got to be honest with you. I have so many ideas about what I want to do, but that's going to be a long time because the good news for me and what I'm, you know, my story's still going, you know, so right. I could write a book right now. I could write a book just on my experiences with Eddie Van Halen that would, you know, blow people's minds. Yeah. And, you know, enlighten people to just what a fabulous and just a warm, great person he was. But that's not, I'm not going to do that, and I have no interest in doing that, and I have no interest in even writing an autobiography on what my experiences are now because the story is still being told. And mm-hmm. I've been just so lucky that every year, wow, 30 years into my career as a national act, it's still getting better and better you know, to where Jesus, did you ever think after having the success that I had that, you know, in 2018, I'd be playing, you know, to 27,000 people with Def Leopard, you know, and continuing the journey. And, and, you know, I have a couple really cool business opportunities that I can't announce right now that <sighs> are, that are coming to fruition. Are
0: and, these music uh, related or
1: all music related, okay. but different, not performing oh. and not, and not, um, just different different facets and okay. things that 20 years ago, I mean, maybe I dreamed of, but now they're actually coming to the point where I'm f- signing contracts and things are going to happen. So I'm always been I've always been one to look and have multiple things. I tell people like to be a successful musician nowadays, you have to be an octopus. You have have to have all your tentacles out. Yeah. With different things. And that's worked very well for me. And I'm always looking for new and challenging opportunities. And that's, you know, again, that's, that's what I love to do.
0: That's very cool. And then the, the future of trickster, because I think the blood, sweat and beers 30th anniversary would be this year. I, I, when I had Bill Leverty on, he's like, I'm in, he's in for, so would you guys want to do like a 30th anniversary of those three bands? I think that would be, I would, I'd be in for that to see it.
1: Yeah, well, we tried doing it in 2010. We tried doing the uh, 20th anniversary, I believe it was, um, or 2011, or I don't know when it was, but we did it, and it's great. I mean, look, the cool thing with the Warren Trickster Firehouse thing is whenever, and we've, we've done shows together, we still all get along like brothers. We are, we remember that time and we hold that time so near and dear to our hearts that like when we see each other, Bill and I, we don't even have to say anything and we start laughing, you know, um, (laughs) Michael Foster, Turner, Joey Allen, Dixon, when we see each other, we just remember. And it's just like, Oh dude, you remember that night when we, you know, we took over that bar and we're just howling. So I would love to, I mean, I don't see it happening this year, yeah. but at some point we will, you know, and, but, um, you know, again, it's one of those things that it was a magical time in our lives. And that tour again was one of the most successful tours of 1991 uh-huh. and it. No one ever thought it was going to be that successful. And it, and it really was, it was a pole star top 10 tour. And, um, you know, again, if you ask those guys, they'll tell you that was kind of the, that was kind of the last great rock tour of that genre.
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Well, is there, so is
0: there anything else on your bucket list? Like a musician you want to work with or a band you want to tour with that you haven't yet? I mean, cause Eddie Van Halen, you, you've met him, you've toured with kiss, you've played in Def Leppard. I mean, is there anything else left? There has to be something, right?
1: Oh, I mean I I st- I love getting these opportunities, you know, to play with, you know, again, Dennis D. Young. Styx was not a band. I love Styx, but I was not like a fan. I was while Sticks when Styx was huge, I was so deep into, you know, Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen mm. and, and, and Def Leppard. I was so in that world that I didn't know much about Sticks. I knew the hits, but to learn that material. So I love all these opportunities. Joel Hookster, my good buddy, got me into play Rock of Ages on Broadway.
0: Yeah. I've never
1: played on Broadway before. Took that opportunity, that and that was one of the hardest, that was one of the hardest gigs I ever had to learn because on Broadway, there are no rehearsals and you have to learn every, you do all the switching of the, you know, the channel switching, you have to do in Rock of Ages, I had actual vocal lines, mm. you know, where I had to say things, I had to be an actor. And it was I. Ne- I don't think I worked harder. You know, Def Leppard. I worked as hard, but it was different. This was one of those things where I. I probably worked harder on the Rock of Ages show than I did on anything. So I'm just again so thankful for all these great opportunities. Whatever comes my way, I'm gonna give it a shot. If it. If again, if it makes sense to me, and okay. that's where I am in my life. It has to make sense. And- I'm not gonna.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't reach out to these like people are giving you the calls now at this point because you have such a great resume. You don't have to make calls and reach out to people and say, hey, can I join? It's when they need you. They know they can reach out and then you get to pick and choose what you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really the truth. I mean, look, every band has their, you know, when when a, when you see a band that needs a fill-in or gets a fill-in guy, they all have inside guys. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason I got the Def Leppard gig was because of a 30-year friendship. Phil Collins, one of my best friends in the world, he's like a brother to me. Mm-hmm. We're family. You know, same thing with the other guys in the band. I've known those guys since I was 17 years old. But the other thing is, is that vocally, I'm one of the only people who could sing those parts, sing the mutlang and what the Viv's parts where, and I have that style of voice. And, you know, Phil was the one who told the guys, Steve is the guy. Joe, listen to 40 Foot Ringo. He's got that voice, you know, the Balsum some sugar on me, that airy, and, the, you know, the, to do those mutlang parts. So, um. It's got to be right. Yeah. You know, it's got to be. I'm right surprised spin.
0: you've never just done like a Steve Brown solo record.
1: That is coming. You know, I mean, oh. again, with <laughs> there it is. There's the headline. No, no, no. So <laughs> let, me, let, me back, let me back up that. I have songs that I'm saving for that uh, for all the fans out there. That's going to happen within the next 20 years. And that's probably <laughs> when you're going to see okay. it. Some sort of book from me. Okay. You know, And, and uh, you know, these are all things in where, you know, I've got a couple guys talking to me about doing a documentary, kind of telling my story because it's a unique angle. So there are a lot of things that I'd like to do, whether they happen or not. But a solo, a, the one official Steve Brown solo album will happen before, I leave this earth and go to, you know, go to rock and roll heaven. Okay. Um, Along with a book. There certainly will, because again, my story, I say it all the time, Chuck. I certainly am one of the luckiest guys in the world that I have lived and became friends with all of my heroes, rock and roll heroes.
0: But see, again, I say it wasn't all luck because who's putting in six to eight hours a day as a kid playing guitar. I mean, and memorizing the names of the secretaries for, for Def Leppard's record company. I mean, yeah. you had that in passion and, uh, you know, intensity. I think that translated, I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit of luck being in the right place, right. Yeah. Time, but I mean, I'm yeah.
1: Maybe I'm being a little bit extra humble on this. Yeah, no, that's I'm okay. Really it's my job to
0: pump you up. So,
1: yeah. So, humble. well, thank you. Thank you for that, man. Yeah. But, uh, I just enjoy what I do. So, but again, all of these things are mammoth undertakings because anything I do in the studio, I just can't bang something out. You know, mm-hmm. there are certain bands and certain artists that I know, let's just say that put out multiple albums a year and like, you know, you, the, you know who they are, you know, they're in, the oh, band yeah, they're five, in like 10 five, different five, bands. Five, yeah. Ten, 10 different bands and a record out every three months and it's like you know and look i don't i i like everybody do whatever works for you it won't work for me yeah. i put too much into what i do i put everything i have into making a record and so um when i do finally do the first official steve brown solo record it's first off it's going to be very unique it's gonna it's gonna have every style of music that i like it's gonna have the hard rock that we that i is my signature, uh-huh. but it's also going to have a lot of different things. I've already started planning, cool. it, but don't hold your breath. Forward. Okay. Well, that's exciting. You know? Will you at least
0: tour with like Eric Martin? Are you, cause you guys came here once and I saw you and it was like, it was awesome. You did uh, Mr. Big, you did trickster songs. It was great. Will you be it's- doing that again?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're waiting. We have some potential. I mean, we have some dates that got canceled for last year that are on the books. I don't know if they're going to happen. I don't know anything. So don't ask me about what's going to happen when, when, when we're given the green light. And I know everybody kind of says that I don't have any answers. I don't have a magic ball of what's going to happen when everything is safe to go back out there. We'll do it. Okay. You know, playing with Eric, you know, PJ and I and Joey Casada. we have a great band Yeah. We do the Mr. Big Trickster show and it's a ton of fun. I loved it. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, cool. Um, Well, I always like to end with a charity. You you mentioned the David Z foundation. So I got to look this up. It's uh, I love it because it's to raise money for music education and I have some music teacher friends. So I think that's a great cause. Tell me more about, is there more to know about that?
1: Well, uh, if you if you know anything about David Z, David Z was my bandmate, my brother in the in the '80s band that I play in Rubik's Cube, and David was in yeah. Trans Siberian Orchestra. He was in ZO2, and he was in the band Adrenaline Mob. And sadly, he was killed a few years back in a tragic car um, hmm. car wreck, um, truck accident, which was all over the news. And I don't really want to get into that, but um, his family and and a bunch of people they, we started this uh, foundation that David was such a Music lover and music education lover and believer. And we all know how music education has been taken away in a lot of schools and a lot of uh, curriculums. Uh And so this was um, something that we all and especially David's family felt would be uh, his, his wishes as far as having a foundation. So this gives a scholarship every year to uh, to a deserving kid, a deserving musician who wants to follow uh, a musical path and learning Love all it. the uh, facets of it. And uh, and again, for just such a great, uh, incredible person, David Z was one of the most unique and incredible, nicest, talented. Um, extraordinary people i've ever met in my life and i was just honored to play you know playing a band with him for the better part of five or six years and uh one of the few guys that actually taught me a lot and i owe a lot to him and i miss him every day and all of us in rubik's cube and you know pj has taken his slot in rubik's cube and you know all of our friends that have played with him jeff scott soto um the zo 2 band paulie z and joey casada um, it's just, the, the list goes on. You ask anybody about David Z, they will tell you that he was one of the most incredible musicians and most of all people on earth. Mm. And, uh, and he's, he's up in heaven looking down, you know, on us and so happy that we're doing this. And so anything okay. you can do to help out the foundation. And this Sunday on Facebook, there is a huge, uh, David Z foundation event where,
0: oh, I think special. I saw that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All over, you know Jeff and Phil Demo and Russell Allen. They, they it was everybody. a giant
0: list of musicians. I think, yeah, yeah but I think I even shared that. I was not putting two and two together until now. But oh, that's great! So that's people, what it is. Okay, so go
1: through it. You know Steve Stevens, Eric Singer. It's just the yeah. list goes on and on. But really, one of a kind, unique. Things and I did. Joey Casada was up here doing drum tracks in the studio. He's got a great collaboration that he's doing with Mark Mendoza from Twisted Sister and um, a couple other guys. And there's some really incredible things. So cool. everybody out there, donate what you can, and uh, and then also anything if you got a little bit extra, help out our crew guys out there. You know, our our, our guys that are in the the business. You know, mm. our, our guitar techs and you know sound guys. It's this business, our entertainment business, and the business has been really taken to its knees so anything extra anything counts 50 cents a dollar anything you can do to help us out the David Z foundation and for the crew, you know, there's, t- there's a bunch of different sites. I think crew lives matter. I think that's one of them. I, I okay. don't even really,
0: I'll find one it. and put that in the notes. And then, um, yeah. So for your website though, I was like I'm trying to go on the trickster website today. Is that down right now? Or yeah,
1: it's, it's kind of down because okay. trickster, you know, we're kind of down at the okay. moment, you know, uh, if you know what I mean, but hiatus know, then I, or again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's, let's be nice about it okay. on this one. Let's okay. Be nice about it um i have nothing (laughs) bad to say about anybody so uh, yeah. So trickster, but Steve Brown rocks. I mean, okay. I don't really do much of a website, you know, Instagram, Steve Brown rocks, Twitter, you know, PJ's around. We got the trickster Facebook, which we handle okay. the trickster Twitter. So that's it. And you know, everybody out there and Chuck, you, especially thanks for doing all you oh. do to keep everybody during this pandemic entertained. Yeah. And I, yeah. hope, I hope you guys get some insight and I hope you get a lot of laughs out of this.
0: Yeah, uh, this was interview. a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this, Steve. Got it, man. All right, take it Take it easy. See you later. Thanks,
1: brother. Talk to you
0: soon. So it's episodes like this where I just feel like a kid in a candy store, hearing stories about Eddie Van Halen, Death Leopard, and Trickster playing pool with Warrant. I mean, just really fun times and great stuff from Steve Brown. Go check out his website, stevebrownrocks.com. Follow him on social media. Follow me on social media if you're not already. And also make sure to subscribe to the podcast via YouTube. Because even if you listen somewhere else, I'm working on some great short video clips and video content stuff that'll be hopefully a lot of fun to watch. Uh, So thank you so much for listening. The show only grows when you share it. So I greatly appreciate it when you do share it. People like uh, Grant, Angela, Michael, and Jason, you guys share it so much. And I really appreciate that. Uh, The more the show grows, the more time and energy I can focus on it. I have big plans for this show, but I can't get there without your help. So thank you. I hope you all have a great day. And remember, with whatever you do, you got to be like Steve Brown and shoot for the moon.